pray. Father, thanks for a time of worship, for the baptisms today, for hopefully the preparation that has gone into now, us being able to receive and look at your word. And so I pray, God, that as we open your book now, that you might speak to our hearts and our minds, and obviously, Lord, make us very glad that we are here today. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, one of the things some of you guys know about me is that I enjoyed a hike. It's one of the sports I do. And over the years, one of the things I've learned about hiking is that you run great risk by not following the path and going off trail. Now, so if you're hiking in the Grand Tetons uh, up in Wyoming and you go off path, you should not complain if you find a bear or a moose. Uh, if you're hiking in Yosemite over in California and you go off trail, don't whine if you run into a bobcat. And one of the things I've learned here in the desert is that if you decide to go off trail when you're hiking, then at least take a cell phone and a snake bite kit because there's a good chance you might run into something that you're not ready for. You get the idea. Paths are made for a purpose. They're well-worn. They're used by many. They usually get you where you want to go relatively safely, and they give you great views along the way. And, and so I'm almost always a path guy when I hike. And the very few times that I've gone off path, I got to tell you, I've regretted it. But when I first moved here, my son and I were out hiking, and we decided to just go straight up a mountain, a little bit off trail. And uh, we were going through a sea of what I would come to know as choya cacti. Anybody you know what a choya cactus is? And they call them, give me a click here, guys. They call them teddy bear cactus, and, 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 and they're really not teddy bears. I mean, if you hug them, you're in trouble. And uh, so I was going up this, this mountainside through all these choya cacti, and all of a sudden, my son Paul said, Dad, don't take another, and he meant step. And before I knew it, in my sandals and shorts, I stepped through a bunch of choya cacti, and they clung to my sandal, and as soon as I walked, they were all over my legs. And so being a desert stupid individual, because I was brand new here, I reached down to grab them. <laughs> and as you can imagine, now I had them in my hand. And I thought, these things really stick, and they really hurt. And so there I was with Troy on my hand and Troy on my uh, leg, and, and who knows what to do there. So finally we figured that what I needed to do was to get something to pull them off with, so I had to take my shirt off, which is always embarrassing at 47. So I took my shirt off, <laughs> And I'm pulling these Troy off my leg and off my hand, and then I got a rash the next day because these barbs stay in you, and I thought, yuck, next time I'm staying on path. And a lot of us have learned that in life, that it's better, quite frankly, to stay on path. And here's the reason I tell you that, because with God, it's no different. Believe it or not, with God, it's no different. He has laid out for you and me some paths or some pathways in this world, a direction that he wants us to go, a terrain that he wants us to follow. The Bible, if you've read it, is filled with pathways and descriptions of pathways that God wants us to take, what Scott Peck labeled years ago, the road less traveled, what Jesus calls the narrow way. And God is concerned that you and I walk a particular path and that we take his path in this world. And so as we wrap up this series on grace last week and this week, Grace and God, we're taking a look at a couple of pathways that God has laid out for you and me to experience his grace. Don't miss that, folks. There's actually some pathways that God has laid out in his word, some theologies that we can think and live in which God says if you go down that road, you have a better chance of experiencing my grace than not. 
And so last week we looked at the idea of God's goodness, the fact that God by his very nature is good and from him flow good things. It's the goodness of God. And we, reckon, and we realize that to the degree that we recognize it, affirm it, and trust it, to the degree that we take this pathway in our minds and hearts of banking on God's goodness is to the degree that we're going to experience his grace. And yet, if you were also with us last week, you know that I hinted to the fact that the Bible further mentions another character trait, this one having to do with you and me, a character trait that, interestingly, is directly linked with experiencing and receiving God's grace. In fact, it's the only scripture, the character trait in the scriptures that I can find, where it says if you have this character trait, you're going to be smack dab in the middle of experiencing God's grace upon you. And it's the character trait of humility. Humility. And folks, before we even dive in any further, what I need to say is that as soon as I say that word humility, we need to recognize that you and I live in a world and culture that is very confused on this idea of humility. Most people in the secular culture here in the western part of the world tend to have a love-hate relationship with humility. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Most people see it as quaint, semi-desirable, the kind of trait that makes you fairly likable on the one hand, and yet they also label it a, a, a trait that's really more for the weak and downtrodden on the other hand. And so this leaves the average person today kind of really not sure what to do with humility. It's semi-desirable, but it runs the risk of making you a sissy. That's the way most people see humility. And then you got Christians who tend to talk about humility a lot because it was obvious that Jesus was a very humble man, that Jesus came to us with humility. I mean, God becoming flesh is a very humble thing. And yet then we get accused as Christians, sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly, of not being very good at living it out. In other words, when it comes to humility, let's be honest, many of us as Christians, our talk outpaces our walk, and that's the classic definition of a hypocrite, and nobody likes being around a hypocrite. And so Christians have their own struggles and frustrations, if you will, with humility. And so what I want us to do here this morning is pause for a few minutes in our lives and park in front of this relatively misunderstood and not always lived out trait and see if we can get somewhere productive with it, okay? And as I do, I want to begin where I always begin, and that's that I want to define my terms with you. So let's begin by all getting on the same page as to what precisely the Bible means by this idea or word of humility. And so here's a good working definition of humility. Look up here on the screen, and that is that humility is having a right estimation of yourself. Did you know that? Humility, as far as the Bible goes, I'll show you this in a second, is the idea of having a right estimation of yourself. Now, if you're tracking with me here this morning, you know that this is not necessarily your classic or even usual definition of humility. And so this might be new to some of you. And further, if I don't miss my guess, if you've been around the church block more than once, you've heard humility defined as similar to this, but subtly different. You see, the way most people define humility in the church world is having a low estimation of oneself. Have you ever heard that before? They say that humility is a low estimation of yourself. And though the word humility in the New Testament does actually mean literally to make oneself low, to level off one's life, I would argue 
that that's only because the New Testament writers were writing to people who had too high of an estimation of themselves. In other words, they were writing against pride. And so Peter, Paul, and James had to challenge them to come down a bit in their estimation. Hence this idea of humility having a low estimation of oneself. And though this is a very good and right definition, I mean, it is the Bible, I would argue that in its most pure state, however, and I think the Bible also affirms this, humility is really having a right estimation of oneself. A right estimation of oneself. What do I mean by this? I want you to look at what Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says about this idea of humility. This is very revealing, and this is where we begin defining our terms. Look at what it says, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. It says, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, now here it is, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Interesting. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should, but utilize sober judgment measured by your faith in Christ. That word sober judgment here is actually one word in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in. And it literally means, now get this, to be sane, to be sensible. I love it. It carries with it the idea of being clear-minded, reasonable, and rational in the way that you assess and conclude certain things about this world. And so in this context, it's saying that when you look at yourself, be sane. Be reasonable and sensible in the view of who you really are and make sure that you factor God into the equation. Make sure you factor what God says about you into the equation according to the faith that God has assigned to you. And so don't miss this, folks. When you get this, then humility becomes having a right and reasonable estimation of yourself, but not just any estimation, because that could be all over the map. No, it's an estimation that factors in who God is, what he has said about himself, you, and this world around you. And so with that understanding, notice with me in even more detail how Peter and James go on to talk about humility in this same vein. These are actually our two main scriptures that I want you to latch on to here this morning. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, and then James chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. I'm going to read them to you as a whole here. First, notice what Peter says. He says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. If you write in your Bible, you might want to underline mighty hand of God. I'll show you why there in a second. And then notice what James says. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Then verse 8, draw near to God. Again, if you underline, underline submit and underline draw near. You know, it's interesting. Both of these passages here from two very different New Testament writers are talking about humility as it's linked to grace. And both are quoting Proverbs 3, verse 34, which says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And yet what I need you to see even further, folks, however, is that both of these New Testament writers are bouncing off the idea that was presented to us in Romans 12, 3, and making sure that this estimation that we have of ourselves is informed heavily by a cogent and right view of God. 
In other words, both of them are making sure that if you and I are going to buy into this humility thing at all, if we're going to have a right estimate of ourselves, we better make sure it's the estimate that we have of ourselves when we're standing next to God and realizing what he says about us, this world, and those around us. So, for instance, notice how Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. It just means to put on the cloth of humility as a protection for your soul. That's what humility does. But then he tells us to attain humility in verse 6, how to attain humility. And he says, by humbling yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Under the mighty hand of God. And so how do you humble yourself? Well, by viewing and placing your life next to and under his mighty hand, which is simply the strength of who he is, his movement in this world and in your life. And you allow this to inform you about you and those around you, this world, and obviously God and his role in your life. So humility is attained through placing your life under his mighty hand. We'll flush that out in just a minute, but don't miss that. And then notice that James says the same thing. He tells us that God gives more and more grace, and then he links us to, to humility. And then he likewise tells us how to attain humility in verses 7 and 8 there when he says, submit yourselves to God. Draw near to God. Same thing Peter is saying. He's saying, how do you get humble in your lives? Well, submit to God. Draw near to God. Be under his mighty hand, as Peter would say. You know, it's fascinating. That word draw near there is an interesting phrase. And in the Old Testament version uh, that was written in the Greek called the Septuagint, this phrase, draw near, is actually used to describe how the priests in the Old Testament would physically draw near to God in the temple, physically go to the temple where God's presence was in order to be with him. And James is capitalizing on that idea. And he's basically saying, the same way today, you and I need to draw near in our hearts and in our minds, in our souls, if we're ever going to be in the presence of God and attain this humility that our souls long for. So are you starting to see, folks? Humility is this idea of having a right estimation of oneself. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. And yet the only way that you and I ever stand a chance of having this right estimate is to stand next to God, to get under his mighty hand, to submit, to draw near, and then and only then are we going to see clearly to who we really are, who God really is, and what this world is really about. You know, I want to get real practical at this point and suggest to you that there are actually essentially three very core elements to Judeo-Christian theology and thinking that once truly recognized, affirmed, embraced and experienced in life that have the power to create authentic humility in our lives. Three things that the Bible makes painstakingly clear about this world, you and me and others and God, that have the power, if you truly believe them and embrace them, to give us a right estimate of ourselves. And I'm going to give you these three things up front there so that you note takers can get them down there. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time here this morning, the few minutes we have left, just walking through what each of these mean. Three words that have the power to change your life when it comes to humility. And they are creation, fall, and redemption. Three core theologies that you will find throughout all of the Bible that have the power to actually create humility in us, this right estimate of ourselves, when we not just believe these things, but actually have the guts to live them out in our lives. And so first, consider the idea of creation. The fact that God made this world, that he made it good, that he made you and me in his image, and toward the higher end of the food chain. And I would submit to you that when you truly latch on to the fact 
that God made you, made you in his image, that this adds value and dignity to our lives and alters even our view of ourselves. So look at Genesis 1, verses 27 and 31. You'll see what I mean. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. You know, it's interesting, some of you know this, but on all the other days that God made stuff in Genesis chapter 1, he got to the end of those days and he said it was good. But then on the sixth day, when he created humankind, he got to the end of that and he said it was very good. Isn't that interesting? And so only when God was done with creation, which included us, did he marvel at what he made. The scriptures will tell us for his own glory. He marveled at what he made and even marveled at you and me who have been made in his image. And that's the point. That when we get in touch with the fact, as the psalmist says, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are made in intricate, highly valuable ways in the sight of God, do we start to realize in awe who God is and how good he is, and this creates a humility in our personhood. You know, there's a uh, scientist out there today who is one of the most well-known researchers on the Human Genome Project by the name of Francis Collins. Collins was actually the guy who headed up the Human Genome Project. He's now the director of the National Institutes of Health. And in 2007, he wrote a New York Times best-selling book called The Language of God. And though I don't agree with everything that he writes about in this book, it's somewhat controversial. One of the things that I love that he did in this book is that he basically came clean with the fact that he is a committed evangelical Christian who has accepted Jesus Christ into his life as Lord and Savior. And throughout the book, he actually weaves in a bit of his story and how he came to Christ. He talks about the fact that when he was a young medical student, he was basically agnostic and didn't have much room at all for God in his life. But then one day, a patient uh, was actually bugging him about God and Christ and saying, you need to take that, your spiritual life, more seriously. And so he started a long journey. And throughout that journey, he had plenty of arguments with a pastor friend of his, and he read everything that C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford Don, had ever written about Christianity. And finally, Francis Collins came to a moment in time where he committed his life to Christ. But interestingly, it wasn't through Lewis, it wasn't through a pastor, it wasn't through one of his patients. He came to Christ through this idea of realizing God's creation and his role in creation. Listen to what Collins says. This is very revealing. Look up here on the screen. He says, I had to make a choice. A full year had passed since I decided to believe in some sort of God, and now I was being called to account. On a beautiful fall day, as I was hiking in the Cascade Mountains during my first trip west of the Mississippi, the majesty and beauty of God's creation overwhelmed my resistance. As I rounded a corner and saw a beautiful and unexpected frozen waterfall hundreds of feet high, I knew the search was over. The next morning, I knelt in the dewy grass as the sun rose and surrendered to Jesus Christ. Folks, that kind of story blows me away. What was the tipping point that convinced an agnostic scientist to accept and follow Christ, to convince an agnostic scientist to embrace humility when it came to placing his life under Almighty God? It was creation. You see, folks, realizing and owning that God created this world and you and me in the process does nothing but add personality, dignity, and value to our view of the world. It adds personality because we realize God is who he said he is. One who's very creative, very good, very awesome in who he displays himself to be. 
It adds dignity because we're created, as the psalmist says, fearfully and wonderfully made, very complex as organic beings with the image of God in us. And yet it adds value to our lives because God, right from creation, says, I love you. I love you more than you could ever realize, and my stamp, my image, is on your life. Truly, folks, the first step to a right estimate of ourselves, the kind that's going to create authentic humility in our souls, is to deeply believe and own the image of God in you. Now, we're just ramping up. There's more. So here's a second core theology that will create a right estimate of yourself, and it's the fall. The fall. Simply put, you're not just created in God's image, value and loved, though you are that, but you're also fallen, flawed, and finite. And this too, according to the Bible, factors greatly into this right estimate that we need to have of our lives. And this is obviously, let's just say it, the part of cogent theology that brings us down to size a bit, reminds us that we are not all that we think we are, that the press releases that we all put out on our own lives might not be as true as others think. And so look at what the Bible clearly says about this issue. I mean, it, it is, could not be more clear. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 6. It says, We all, all we like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And then Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, it blows me away about these passages and really dozens of others because they're all over the Bible. It is the universal nature of the theology laid out here. I don't know if you caught it or not, but it's inescapable. All of us, everyone, for all of us. I mean, the Bible is making clear that there's not one of us here this morning in this worship center that has escaped the effects of a sinful, fallen, flawed, and finite nature. And what the Bible says then is that this should create an ongoing humility in our lives as we own this and even confront this on a daily basis. And therein lies the key, folks, to a right estimate that creates humility. I've got to ask you a question. And that is, have you gotten to the point in your life where you recognize, I mean, beyond just admitting that you have a flaw or two, because everybody does that, but I mean really recognize, realize, feel, and experience your fallen nature and I mean to the point that it has created some anxiety, some frustration, even a brick wall that you've hit that has caused you to finally say uncle to God because you realize your spiritual and relational limitations. Have you ever gotten to that point in your life? Because I'm telling you, I've rubbed shoulders with a lot of people in my 30 years of being a Christian and 20 years of being a pastor, and it's those that have gotten deeply in touch with their flawed and finite fallen nature and those that are still in touch with it, even as followers of Jesus, that tend to be the most humble. You know, I can only bear witness to this in my own life. I mean, those who know me know that I'm no poster child for humility. I struggle with pride in my own life almost every day. In fact, even last night I was on the phone with a friend that I had been out to dinner with apologizing for another stupid thing that I said. And, and embarrassingly, I find I do that quite often that I'm calling people and having to apologize for something I said. And it's usually my wife, Kim, who's nudging me saying, you deserve to own your, own, your own phone call there. And yet there are times when humility does invade my soul, but where I think God has placed me in that sweet spot where I really got a right estimate of me and him and those around me. But isn't it interesting? It's usually when I'm not just in touch with, with the creation act and that he loves me and values me, but I'm also deeply in touch with my own brokenness. 
Give me a head nod that you might understand that. At times when I'm confronted with my own hypocrisy, the fact that I'm not what I think I am, that at least my wife Kim would say puts me in that spot where I'm a lot more enjoyable to be around. Or, or, or I'm, I'm becoming more like Christ in my life. And though those are frustrating, embarrassing, even humiliating experiences, the humility that it creates in us, I find is very Jesus-like. I'm going to tell you a story here in a few minutes of just somebody that has really, um, that I've enjoyed being around lately because of the humility in him. But suffice it to say that it's from those broken moments in life where we run into our limitations that we tend to find this good humility being created in us. And make no mistake, that's you getting in touch with the fallenness of your soul. And I think it's key for Christians to remember, realize, feel, and experience daily what we're made of. Because just as creation makes us realize value and dignity, the fall makes us realize our flawed and finite nature, and it creates humility in us. And then a third and final core theology to this right estimate that we are to have of our lives, and this is the pinnacle of it all, is God's redemption. His redemption. The fact that God could have left us in this flawed, finite, and fallen state, but by his grace, that's what we've been looking at in this series, he chose not to. And he's given us redemption, the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ. Folks, don't miss this. It's like all over the New Testament. Look at Colossians 1, verses 13 to 14. It says, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that's our fallen and finite nature, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, that word redemption is like a big theological $10 word that a lot of people really don't get. They don't really understand what it means because it's not used in popular culture today. So let me instruct you. The word simply means to release or to loose. It carries a picture of freeing someone for ransom, to buy back somebody from being held in bondage or from being held down. And so in this context then, it simply means that Christ has bought us back from the bonds of sin. He has released us through forgiveness. He's brought us to God. And as we've seen in this series, it's totally by a move of his grace. And again, folks, once you get this, it creates a deep humility in us because we realize that God didn't owe us this. It's not like God was up there in heaven going, he's good, she's not, he's bad, he isn't. God wasn't doing that. All of us were in the same boat as we've seen. All of us are in a flawed, finite, fallen state, separated from God, and in his grace, he gave us Jesus Christ. And that's what redemption is all about, is that God offers every one of us a chance to come home to him. Remember the story of the prodigal son? To come home to him in intimate, eternal relationship. It's the most cool thing to ever hit humankind. And the point is, for those of us who've experienced that, we should be the most humble people on earth. We should be the ones saying, there but for the grace of God go I. My gosh, he saved my soul. I'm in awe of who he is and who I'm not. It's a humility-producing endeavor to get saved to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so, folks, when you add all this up, these three ingredients of creation, fall, redemption, this idea that you're valued but fallen, redeemed but still flawed, it does nothing but create deep and abiding humility in your soul. One last story and we're done. I told you I was uh, 
meeting with a guy lately that, that just really kind of impressed me. And, and yet I want to tell you, the reason I was impressed with this guy was not because of his resume. He's actually got a great resume. He's a leader in commerce here in Arizona. He works with legislatures as well as business leaders and trying to make stuff happen in a very difficult economy. He's a very bright individual. He's got all the degrees behind him, and he's wildly successful in business. He started coming to our church a couple years ago. And yet we got lots of people, quite frankly, in our church that have done very well. I mean, this is Scottsdale, and it's the center of Scottsdale and all of that. And so I meet lots of people who, uh, based on their resume, have done very well in their lives. And yet there was something about this individual that has continued to draw me to him. And the experience I've had with him, and you guys have had experiences like this too, is that when I get done having lunch with him, I can't wait for the next one. Do you have people like that in your life? And it's beyond just an affinity or a friendship like that. There's just something about this guy's nature that draws me to him. And I realized this week what it was. It's his humility. That in the midst of all of his successes, all of the things that, that he has in his life, he's just a very humble, non-pretentious, kind of nice guy to be around. And what is it that creates this humor? Or what is it that, 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 that makes him so humble here? Well, he talks respectfully and endearingly about his wife. In fact, I can tell that the day he took his vows to say, I love, honor, and cherish her, he really meant it, and he's lived it out. He's very fond of his children. He's supportive of his church. He's very faithful and admiring of his friends. And he's confident and bold in his business, but he's also very collaborative. He's the kind of guy that just includes everybody. And again, each time I've met with him, I can't wait till the next time we meet together. And all of us can relate to people like that. And yet what hit me this week is that I also know enough about my friend to know that the theology that we're talking about here this morning, this idea of creation, fall, redemption, is not just something that this guy gives a little bit of lip service to or approves of. No, this is something that he has deeply experienced in his life. As I've scratched below the surface in his life, he deeply and truly has experienced the value and love of God as being one in his image. As I've scratched below the surface of life, he has stories of brokenness, difficult times where he's butt up against his own limitations and realized that he's not God's gift to humankind nor Arizona. He's also realized the redemption that comes in Jesus Christ, and he wakes up every day, and he doesn't think I'm a big wig in Arizona. He wakes up every day and says, Thank you, God, for saving my pathetic soul. And as a result of that, don't miss this, I want to be around this guy. As a result of that, he is selfless, other-centered. He takes a great interest in other people and loves them with a genuine love. He's got the kind of humility that I mentioned earlier that the world longs for, they're just confused by. And my point is, I wonder what would happen if 5,000 people who called Scottsdale Bible Church all had that kind of humility. If all of us were so enamored with God's creation act, so in touch with the fall, and yet so in awe of his redemption that it could not help but create humility in our souls. I'm telling you, we'd rock this culture. We would rock Scottsdale, we'd rock Phoenix, we'd rock Arizona, we'd rock the United States, we'd rock the world. The first century church had none of the resources you and I have today to build the church. They didn't have buildings, they didn't have big offerings, they didn't have paid staff. And yet they infiltrated culture in such a way that just changed the Middle East, changed North Africa, changed all the way over by the time of Augustine into England and Europe. I mean, without any of the resources you and I have today, all they had was love, faith, and hope, and a big dose of humility. And I just can't wait to see what God will do for those of us who will listen to this today and allow humility and brokenness to invade our soul as we get deeper in touch with His grace. Why don't you pray with me? 
Father, I thank you that your word is so clear and instructive to us about who you are, who we are, and even how to make sense of this world around us. And God, we didn't talk about it this morning, but we live in a world today in which we are bombarded every day with messages of pride. We're bombarded every day, God, to believe our own press releases, to muster up our own strength, to live our own self-sufficient lives. And along comes your word, and you say, in very candid terms, that you're opposed to that kind of pride, but that you'll give grace to the opposite. You'll give grace to those who embrace humility. So God, I pray that as we wrestle here, each one of us today, with what a right estimation of ourselves means in our own particular context, I pray we'd not be afraid to filter it through the grid of creation and fall and redemption. And that God, as each of us do that for our own lives, you might create in us a character that truly is more like Christ's, more like Jesus, and make us people that lost people others want to be around. Make us more tender to our families. Make us more responsive to our children, more other-centered with those around us. And in the process of that, Lord, use us to build the kingdom of God in the hearts of people around us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that we can never get enough of talking about this amazing grace that has hit us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.